I'd like you to turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, we're going to be in verses 15 through 29. We'll probably go all the way to 33. And while you're turning there, let me, let me just share uh, a little bit of history with you. Uh, we've tried to mark uh, our time together with various themes. And um, for those of you that haven't been with us for very long, uh, I want to go all the way back to 2004. Uh, I was an intern and attended a, a conference on the East, uh, West Coast and came back with the word exposition and the idea that we could go through Scripture line by line, verse by verse. And on May 1st of 2004, we started in Mark. Uh, we, I covered chapter 1, verses 1 through 39. In 2005, I became senior pastor. Uh, in 2006, we did our first Apollos class. And on uh, April the 6th, 2006, we finished Mark. So we were in Mark for quite some time. Uh, so in 2007, we took a lot of what we had learned, and uh, our theme for 2007 was, it's not about you, it's about God. And so that became an underlying uh, current that ran through our teaching throughout the year for 2007. And we, we believe that that kind of sunk in with folks. So in 2008, we introduced the phrase, some participation is required. Uh, there's some participation on our behalf in our sanctification. We work with the Holy Spirit in being drawn unto the Father. And that took some time to sink in. In 2011, we said, let's read our Bible together. And that was the first time that we introduced corporate Bible reading. We put a bunch of plans out, and we chose one that we were going to guide the church through, but there were a lot of people involved in that. Uh, that happened on January 2nd, 2011. And in 2012, as we read our Bibles together, we began to emphasize the authority of God the authority of the Word of God. And that rolled right into 2013 where we had the challenge, will you be changed by the Word or will you try to change the Word? So that, we let that linger for a couple of years because that's a hard one because we all come with preconceptions of the Word of God. Sometimes we have to lay those aside uh, and accept what the Word says rather than what somebody in our Sunday school taught us when we were little kids or, or something we had heard on the radio. So in 2016, it was all about the sovereignty of God and how he has sovereign authority over every aspect of creation. Uh, that's another one that, that can be a little hard to swallow at times, but once we begin to see it, we begin to see the glory of God. And in 2017, it was all about that sovereign God being on the throne. It was God on the throne all the time, regardless of whether or not our lives were in order, regardless of whether or not we were going through trial or tribulation or celebration or whatever, God was on the throne. And in 2018, we decided that we would take all of the learning that we had and our identity as a church. We thought we had identified who we were by 2018 and go beyond the walls take all that doctrine and theology and, and Bible learning and go out into the community. And in 2019, we realized that we were better together. So that brings us up to 2020. 
And for 2020, this is the big lead up. <laughs> this is what all these flags are about. I just, I, I wanted to get your attention and to say that this is important because for 2020, I want to explore what it means to be better together. We know who we are. We are, we're, we're messengers of the gospel. We are ambassadors of the love of Christ. We've heard that a number of times in the last year. Well, what does it look like to be a messenger of the gospel? What does it look like uh, to be an ambassador of the love of Christ? How do we affect that? So our theme for this year is going to be love in action. How do we put this incredible love that we have experienced into action in our daily lives? We're going to explore that uh, over the the, the next few weeks, we're called to love each other. We're called to love the people that don't have Jesus Christ. We're called to an incredible ministry of truth and mercy and grace to people that need to hear that sort of thing. But we're also called to love each other. And so how does that look? How does it look in the home? How does that look in our church? And how does that look in the community. So the first sermon in this three-sermon series, we're taking a break from Luke, is going to be love and action in the home. And uh, I, I want to tell you something about myself, and this is going to be very revealing to you. I control the thermostat in our house. Okay? Now, I'm a manly man, an alpha male, and I like being in control. And I control the thermostat in our house. Now, that says a lot. I hope you hear what I'm saying, <laughs> okay? Because pride comes before the fall, amen? <laughs> I had been taught that I was the spiritual head of my house, and, and that's a good teaching, but what I interpreted that to be was that I was the king of my house. And, you know, I could hardly help but to think that if I'm the king of the house, well, everybody else are, are my subjects in the house. So, so that thought that I control the thermostat in my house dominated my relationship with my wife and my children for a number of years until we discovered what the passage that we're looking at actually says. So, what, what do the scriptures say that a husband should be doing? What do they say about a man and a wife? And so we find that in Ephesians 5. Now, leading up to Ephesians 5, to this point in Ephesians 5, we, we see Ephesians is divided into two sections. The first three chapters of Ephesians are all about uh, a focus on basic Christian belief. Who is God? Who is Christ? What is their relationship like? What do we believe about them? And the last three chapters put practical application to what they were taught in the first three chapters. So, and, and in particular in five, it talks about the marriage relationship. Uh, but then it moves on to family and uh, people outside the family and the community and the church as well. So chapter four speaks of unity in the body and how the body is one. And, and it talks about the new life, the new hearts that we have in Jesus Christ. And chapter five begins to roll out how the love of Christ should characterize all of the relationships that we have. 
Now, it, it starts out uh, with, with the most intimate relationship we have, which is the one we have with husbands and wives and, and, and our children. So this is where Paul has been going in Ephesians. He set all this stuff up so that he could roll things out in 5 and 6. He wants the body of Christ to demonstrate how the love of Christ permeates all of their relationships in, in how they live and how they treat each other. Now, Paul shows this in our passage today in two different portrayals. We see God's will. We all want to know what God's will is, don't we? We're always searching for what, what is God's will in my life. Well, we're going to find out what it is in verses 15 through 21. And then we will see God's work in our lives in verses 22 through 29. Like I said, we'll probably go all the way to 33. So, uh, Paul says, let's, let's talk about God's will. How does God's will work itself out in our life? What does it look like? How can we tell what it is? Paul says in verses 7 through 9 before our passage that we are the light of the Lord. So we should walk in that light. In other words, we should walk in his will, in his plan for our lives. Then he says this in verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish but understand that the will of the Lord is and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, in those verses, there are three not buts. There are three contrasts in those verses that Paul wants us to see. And the first one is we are to be not unwise, but wise. Now, what he's talking about is wise in the ways of godly behavior, wise in the ways of the world. Uh, so how, how do we get wise in the ways of the world? Well, Pastor Scott is in the middle of a series on Proverbs. If we want to see the wisdom of how we are to live in the world, all we have to do is look at the wisdom literature. And our two primary resources for that are Proverbs and the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, those aren't a collection of promises. They aren't necessarily a collection of of obligations or, or, or covenants that God has made with us. They're just practical application of living a godly life in the, the fallen world that we live in. So, so it, we're to be wise in those ways. We're to be wise in how we relate to each other, how we relate to people that don't have Christ, how we, how we move in our communities, we move in, our, in the body of Christ, and how we relate to each other. The second one is to be not foolish, but understanding, and understanding the will of the Lord. So, and, and the only way we can, I mean, there are a lot of different ways that people try to be understanding about the will of the Lord, and a lot of them have to do with, I had a feeling, I heard a word, there somebody whispered in my ear, but the only way that we can be positive about what the will of the Lord is by reading the scriptures. So, uh, they should be read objectively. Uh, they should be read uh, as a guideline for our lives. They are objective, they are not subjective. So we're, we're to understand the word of God and how it applies to our life. And then the third not but is not to be drunk with wine, but to be filled with the spirit. Now, we have to understand how Paul uses wine sometimes. I mean, it's not a good idea to uh, over imbibe in wine, uh, but it, there's no prohibition against having wine. So 
the way Paul is using wine in this context is not to be drunk in the ways of the world, not to live the way the world does, but to live by the Spirit, live by being filled with the Spirit, not to be enamored with the world, but to be consumed, to be dominated by the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God should be leading us in all that we do. Uh, We should be guided by the Spirit. So we are to be wise in our behavior if we're going to understand the will of God. We are to understand our scriptures if we're going to understand the, the will of God. And we are to be filled by the Holy Spirit. Now, that's how we're to understand his will. The Spirit is the main ingredient. So without the Holy Spirit, this is impossible. We can't do this on our own. We can't figure it out. It means that we have to be intentional in learning all we can about the Holy Spirit and about how he interacts with our lives. We have to be intentional in our prayer life. We have to be intentional in our reading. And then, as we find out, we're going to have to be intentional in how we treat each other and how we relate to each other. And all those things have to be guided by what we see in Scripture. So, that's how we can determine God's will. What do we do with that? How, would he, how do we walk that out? And I love it because Paul never really leaves you hanging on these things. He'll put this, this incredible concept in front of us, and then he will tell us how to walk through it. And he does that starting in 19. How do we do these things? We do it by addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says in verse 21, and verse 21 is the key verse to chapter 5. It might be the key verse to the last half of all of Ephesians. He says, submitting to one another out of the reverence for Christ. So Paul gives us Five different ways to walk in the will of the Lord. Five directions. Five ways to be walking in the light. We do it by speaking to each other in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Now what that means is that we're sharing scripture with each other. We're reminding each other what the word of God says. How many of you have gone on to Facebook yesterday? Oh, nobody. That's pretty. Oh, thank you. Thank you. One person went on to Facebook. Any given day, I can go on to Facebook, and somebody will, will have a lyric from a song over there, and then there'll be a whole string of, of lyrics after that repeating the rest of the song. We should be doing that with Scripture. I mean, that's how they taught young men the Scriptures. They would recite Scripture to them, They would recite a verse of scripture, and then the young man should recite the verses that follow it. So we should be talking to each other in terms of scripture, in terms of word of God. It's not the the only way we communicate, but the way we encourage each other, the way we build each other up, is we remind each other of scripture. And we don't use it as a tool, as a blunt instrument to attack somebody. We use it to lift people up. We talk about the grace of God. We talk about the mercy of God. We talk about what we read today, what we read yesterday. We ask questions about, and we go to each other and say, well, I don't fully understand this. Do you have any insight to it? 
We have discussions in our, in our Bible groups over it. Uh, I, I love the, the idea that we have all of these different ways to communicate with each other, but what are we doing with them? Are we using all of these different ways that we communicate for the glory of God? Are we using it for the building up of the body of Christ? So we should, there should be a scriptural presence in the way that we talk to each other. So we do it by speaking to each other in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We do it by singing. And this is what we just got done doing. We sing corporately when we, when we turn our focus on Christ, when we begin singing the things we believe, when we begin singing our doctrine and our theology. Uh, this is an encouragement and a nourishment for everybody. So we sing out loud together, but we also make melody to the Lord in our hearts. And that means that our hearts are always singing to our Father. Our hearts are always filled with joy and gratefulness and thankfulness to our Father. There's, there's a tune in our hearts that is in harmony with the tune of the Holy Spirit. So we're walking through our day in the company of the Holy Spirit, being guided by Him, uh, being, being encouraged by Him, being lifted up by Him. And not only do we do that, but we, we give thanks always. Now, it's, it's easy to be thankful when things are going great. But it's not so easy to be thankful when we're having a hard time. But we know, we know that Scripture tells us that God will use the hard times in our lives to draw us closer to Him. So we're not necessarily bubbling over with joy over the trials that we're in. We don't have to do that. We don't have to just point a, a uh, Christian smiley face on our hardships. But we can be thankful that God will use them to draw us closer to him and for his glory in our lives. So we give thanks at all times. And then we have the key to everything. We have, we have the, the one universal rule that tells us how we should survive as the body, that tells us how we should be able to come together and what makes us one unit, what makes us one in Christ. We are to submit to each other out of reverence, out of the the fear of Christ. Now, not out of the trembling fear of Christ, but out of that, that reverential awe that we have to Christ. We submit one to another. So, God's will is to encourage us, encourage, for us to encourage each other with Scripture, to nurture and minister to each other in song, to nurture and minister to ourselves by allowing music to erupt from our heart in, in honor of the Holy Spirit, to be thankful for each other in all things, and to submit to each other. Well, there's God's will. Five things that we can do to be in God's will. Now, everything else, as, as God has revealed this to us, everything else is secondary to that. We spend a lot of time and a lot of real estate trying to figure out what God wants me to do next. These five things are the priority. They're right there in your, in your handouts. If we're doing those, then whatever comes next will be in God's will. So we need to make sure that these things become our priorities. 
everything else will fall in line if we're doing that. Well, then as we do that, God's work begins to rise up. Well, what does God's work in our life look like? And we're starting with the most intimate relationships. And the first thing we see, starting in verse 22, and, and this, is, this is just vitally important. We, we see the first example of submitting to each other. You see, there's a paragraph book break. Take a look in your Bibles. There's a paragraph break there between 21 and 22, isn't there? And I got to tell you something. So much damage has been done by isolating verse 22 from verse 21. It, 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 it makes sense as we read it, but the original manuscripts, there was no paragraph break, there's no verses in there, there's no punctuation, they all run together. And so there's nothing wrong with the paragraph break other than if we begin to treat verse 22 through 33 as a separate thought from the thought prior. So Paul says, submit yourselves one to another, and then he immediately goes into an example of what that mutual submission looks like. In verse 22, he says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. So the wives are to submit to their husbands in their submission to the Lord. Okay? For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its Savior, now, as a church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to, her, to their husbands. Now, I, I'm not going to get into headship and everything because there's a big debate over what head means and the word, Greek word kephale and whether or not it's source or, or administrative head and everything because I don't really think it applies to this passage. I think that these couple verses right here have been used as a weapon against women. And they have led to people standing up and saying foolish things like, I control the thermostat in my house. I mean, the guys love it, don't we? The wife is to submit to me. I'm the king. Do what I say. It's incredible. Verse 22 follows verse 21. Submit yourselves one to another. Paul begins saying, what does this look like? Let me show you what it looked like. Wives, submit to your husbands. Notice that there's nothing in here of obedience. It doesn't say wives, obey your husbands. There's no license for the, the man, the husband, to force submission upon the wife. And that's not Paul's emphasis here. That's why I don't think the headship thing is a big thing because Paul's emphasis, starting with four and rolling all the way through five, focuses on self-sacrifice. Yes, the husband is responsible for the wife, but we're going to see that his responsibility is to love, to give of himself, to nurture, just as Christ did for the church. And that can play out in a lot of different ways. 
But none of them, none of them involve control or authority. That's not what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about mutual submission. He's talking about one flesh. He's talking about a relationship that goes deep and is complicated. And he goes from there to his second example of what mutual submission looks like. Now, I want you to notice there are three verses telling the wife what mutual submission looks like. There are six verses telling the husband what it looks like. I don't want to say men are stubborn, but I think that's what Paul had in mind. Husbands, love your wives. Notice this does not say husbands rule over your wives. Love love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, Paul is reiterating a couple of themes that he's already introduced in Ephesians. This is why it's so important to read things in context. How does 22 through 33 fit into chapter 5? How does chapter 5 fit into the book of Ephesians? Paul has been laying groundwork up to this point. In, in uh, verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Walk in a manner worthy of your calling, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. And in chapter 5, verse 2, he says, And walk in love as Christ loved us, and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. He's telling the husbands to be a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to their wives. To bear with one another in love and gentleness and patience. And the husband does this. The husband gives himself up so that, verse 26, he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Christ and his, what he's done for us becomes the example, the template for how the husbands treat their wives. The way Christ acts towards his bride, he suffered for her. He's patient with her. He's caring with her. He sacrifices her for her, and he loves her. And the whole language that we see in verses 26 and 27 is of nurturing, of caring for, of looking out for her interests. Now, this was particularly poignant in the first century because the husband's obligation in that culture was pretty much to provide for and, and, and to get food. And that was about it. And then the wife had all of these duties. The husband was in control of everything. Whatever he said went. And Paul is just upsetting the apple cart here. He's saying, that's not how it's to be among you. You're supposed to have a different relationship with your wives. You're supposed to be set apart. The world should be able to look at you and see that there's something special about you. He's telling the husbands to place the well-being of, of the wife 
above his own self-interests. This is hard stuff. I've told you before, I'll step in front of the bus for my wife, throw her out of the way, rescue her, put a big ad in the paper about how noble and how brave I was. The question is, can I give up the Sunday game for my wife? Can I give up the one thing that I want to do this weekend to honor my wife with something she wants to do? See, the big stuff's easy. The small stuff is hard. But it has to be on our minds. It has to govern how we act. And Paul goes even deeper in 28 and 29. Look at this. In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his own wife loves himself. This is not an admonition for us to love ourselves. It's an admonition to treat each other as mutual submission here. To treat each other as more important than ourselves. For no one has ever hated his own flesh, verse 29, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. When we do a wedding, we do the traditional vows, love, honor, cherish, and obey. And, you know, cherishing each other is pretty easy uh, until about three or four months after the honeymoon. <laughs> then it becomes a bit of a chore, doesn't it? I mean, it's hard to cherish each other all the time. Kelly and I are going to be married 40 years come this February 25th. And we're just absolutely thrilled. But I've got to be honest with you. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, I can't say that I cherish my wife. And I think if she were here, uh, she would tell you that there are times when she doesn't cherish me. So we have to be intentional. We, we have been given new hearts. We have been created new creatures. And the problem is that we struggle with that. That's what Romans 7 is all about. Paul says, why do I do the things I don't want to do? Because we're in transformation. And we have to intentionally embrace the character and nature of God in our lives and walk these things out. And one of the things that Kelly and I have been learning, we don't have it perfect yet, is when we stop at that moment when my self-interest is more important to me than her welfare, if I can stop in that moment and go, this is not the way it's supposed to be. And act contrary to my nature, there's a blessing involved in it. Now, this becomes vitally important when one presses the other's buttons. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> that one thing <laughs> that always kind of gets under the skin. 
I, I, I like to use imagery when I'm doing counseling. And, and I've got to tell you something. There are couples that live their lives in a boxing ring, and they're both in the corners, and the only time they come out of the corners is to swing at each other. And my advice to them is somebody has to lay the gloves down. Somebody has to stop swinging. And it's kind of interesting because I'll usually follow that up with, it will be the most mature one. And that's when they look at each other. <laughs> well, that'll be me. <laughs> I'm more mature. <laughs> Doesn't matter. Somebody's got to take the gloves off. Somebody's got to have that sacrificial love for the other that Christ has for his church. This, this is a complicated relationship. Each one submitting to the other. Each one serving the other. Each one sacrificing for the other. Nourishing, honoring, caring for. And it's all embodied in a phrase you'll hear again next week out of the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verse 3, where Paul says, do nothing selfish from selfish ambition or conceit, but in all humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Count others as more significant than yourselves. This is hard. Why? Why would God call us to do something so difficult? Why would God call us to do something contrary to what the whole world tells us? And the world tells us it's all about me. It's all about my desires. Every ad I read, every movie I watch, every story I read is somehow about me and being fulfilled as an individual. God says, no, 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 no. You fulfill the others around you. You work for their welfare, not your own. Well, God tells us why he's called us to do this, this incredibly hard thing. Verse 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Our relationships are called to be a model of how Christ relates to his church. We are to be shining examples of self-sacrifice, of unconditional love and grace and mercy, and a willingness to see the other person that you're living with as more important than yourself. Isn't that what every argument's about? We get upset because each one of us feels more important than the other. You're not thinking about me. You didn't ask me. You didn't tell me. You're not fulfilling my expectations. You've disappointed me. You've let me down. This is tough stuff. 
If we're to read on, we're going to find out that the same basic rule of self-sacrifice applies to relationships with our children, with the people around us, with the people in the community. So God's work in our lives is to mold and shape us into the type of servant that his son is as we serve each other. The type that gives up everything in love to serve and to save his beloved. That's what Christ did for us. That's what we're supposed to be doing for each other. So, so we've seen God's will. We, we, we've found a way to determine God's will, his, his highest will in our lives. We, we saw five ways to walk in the light, five ways to walk in his will. But we're to speak to each other in, in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We're, we're to sing corporately. We're to make melody in our hearts. We're to take joy in, in uh, our relationship with Christ. We're to give thanks always, and we're to submit to each other out of reverence for Christ. We've seen God's work. How do we put that into action in our homes? And we do it by treating each other as more significant than ourselves. There is no leader. There is no king of the house. There is a king of the house, but it's not me or Kelly. It's Jesus Christ. He's the Lord over the house. We're submitting to him and submitting to each other as we submit to him. I control the thermostat in my house. But what I've learned over the last 40 years is my first question would be, honey, what would you like the temperature to be? I mean, that's it in a nutshell. Her comfort above my comfort. And, and as she begins living that, and I've got to tell you, she's better at it than I am. We encourage each other to engage in that behavior because that's where God's blessing is. That's where God's peace is. That's where the fullness of joy is. And that's, that's what gets us through those moments when we inter, either inadvertently or intentionally push each other's buttons. And we have these five things we can resort to when that happens. Are we t speaking to each other in Scripture? Are we singing together? Are we singing in our hearts? Are we giving thanks? Are we submitting one to another? Let me tell you something. I've said this before. This body, you, in this room right now, we can change this city. With everything, all the crazy stuff that's going on out there. We can have an impact for Jesus Christ on this city, but a transformed city will begin with transformed homes. As the light shines from our windows and our doorways and pours out onto the streets around us and begins illuminating the people around us, as they see something different about us, as they see a deeper relationship, as they see something wonderful beyond their imagination, then we can have an impact on, on the entire area. So, so I've been putting these flags up. Okay? And I'm going to give you your own flag today. Now, 
you're going to have a red flag. I want you to take it home, put it on your refrigerator, hang it in your car, put it in your pocket, do whatever. And I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you permission to wave it at each other. Now watch, <laughs> because if we're waving it at each other in the spirit of everything we just read in the scriptures, the very first person we should wave this flag at is ourselves. So the flag is not a weapon. The flag is a reminder of treating each other as more significant than ourselves. So the minute you pick it up in anger, and that's going to happen, I promise you, if you take this seriously, the moment you pick it up in anger, you have to ask yourself, wait a minute. (laughs) We're not referees on a football field throwing yellow flags at each other. It's for us. Scripture is not a weapon to use to mold and shape someone else. It's a mirror. And we should be looking into that mirror every time we read Scripture and asking ourselves whether or not we're doing what it says. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the hard things. We confess, Father, that sometimes they're so hard that we can't imagine how we might be able to do this on our own. But we're also thankful that you haven't called us to do it on our own, Father. You've given us the Holy Spirit. That Christ is in us. And all we have to do is follow him, Father. All we have to do is respond to that still silent voice in us that says, treat somebody else as more important than yourself. Help us, O Lord. Have mercy on us as we walk this walk. And we pray, Father, that we might honor you in everything that we do and everything that we say. And these simple pieces of red material here might be a reminder of the call that you've placed on us to be submissive to each other as we are unto the Lord. And let that be a blessing to our homes, Father, and let our homes be a blessing to our neighborhoods and our neighborhoods be a blessing to our community. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.